um, at Renovation Church, we are walking through the, the letter to Romans, uh, Paul's letter to the church in Rome. In this book, uh, we have been walking through for quite a while, amen? We've taken some breaks, but we are right now, um, have made it through the end of chapter 9, and we are into Romans chapter 10, verses 1 through 4, and so I want to read that this morning, and then we will pray together. I'm going to start because it makes more sense at uh, chapter 9, verse 30, where uh, Mike preached last week, and I'm going to read from chapter 9, verse 30 through chapter 10, verse 4. So if you have your Bibles, grab it. If you don't have a Bible, we're going to put it up on the screen, and if you don't want to look at the screen, open the app on your phone, right? Um, Romans chapter 9, starting in verse 30. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith. But as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. This is the word of the God. Amen. Let's pray. God, I just prayed this morning that you would open our hearts to your word, that you would somehow, in the way that you do, the God who created the world, who said, let there be light, and there was light in the darkness, you have an ability to show light in our hearts. It says in 2 Corinthians that you would shine a light in our hearts and that you would illuminate in our hearts the scriptures that we would know you, that we would understand that the mysteries of the gospel would be made known to us, that we could receive by faith this righteousness that's not our own. God, we look to you this morning to speak to us. In Jesus' name, everybody said, amen. So Romans chapter 10, we've been walking through nine, and, and we are continuing really the same argument. Um, one, of the, one of the downsides, I mean, we obviously love and, and make it a practice to preach week by week through a book of the Bible. One of the difficult things about preaching week by week, particularly through a book like Romans, is, is it's a week in between uh, little passages of Scripture, and, and it's hard sometimes to think in context. Paul has been making an argument throughout chapter 9 and into chapter 10, um, and the thrust of his argument is still the same, and we're going to walk through that together. And I, I, I believe that there is really a main heart idea that God wants to get across to us today as, it's, as it rises out of Romans chapter 10, verses 1 through 4. In 2006, I had just finished law school. My wife and I, Trisha, and our, at the time, only two kids, we had Sophia and Aiden, who was maybe just two, um, we were packing up to move home from Boston to Syracuse. We, I was getting ready to study for the bar. We were 
in the process of talking about planting a church, uh, Missio Church downtown. There was a lot going on, and I was anxious to get home. So our family came out to help us pack. And many of you know my father-in-law, Bob, who's a deacon here, and you know him well. There is a lot of things that Bob is phenomenal at, and we are so grateful for. Directions is not one of those things. Now, I asked his permission before I told the story. So we, we're packing up, and we're loading the U-Haul truck, and uh, it's like we're getting down to the end. Everybody's exhausted. We got the U-Haul packed. I'm doing the last walk through the house to make sure we got everything. And as I'm kind of walking through the house, I come out, and my brother-in-law, Bobby, um, and his children, and everybody was there helping us, and we're about to launch off from Boston and head back to Syracuse. And those of you who know geography a little bit, if you think of the city of Boston, it's right on the coast, right? It's right on the water. And I lived in a southwest suburb of Boston called Norwood, Massachusetts. So if you think about that, there's like a road, the 128 Beltway or 95, that is like a half a pizza, because those are the terms I think in. It's like a half a pizza around the city of Boston. So if you start in the South Shore, you would follow it all the way around the city of Boston to the North Shore, right? And then right above that is New Hampshire, and then above that is Maine. Um, Halfway up the half a pizza, almost even with the city of Boston, is the Mass Turnpike, is Route 90, right? So if we're heading to Syracuse, you go halfway up 95 and take a left, and head west down Route 90 to Syracuse. So we packed the truck. I do the last spin through the house. I'm coming out of the parking lot, and Bob looked at me in that way that Bob and his competitive nature only can. And with great zeal, he said, I'm going to beat you home. He's like, we're, we're heading out. We'll see you there. And I could tell he wanted to be first. Um, so him and Bobby got in the car, and a couple of Bobby's kids jumped in the car. I say a couple of Bobby's kids because he has seven. Um, <laughs> I don't remember which ones. I lost track after three, and I'm learning, I'm learning them. Um, so Bobby jumps in the front, and we're exhausted. Bobby and I and my brother and some folks had been celebrating my graduation from law school, and so I'm sure Bobby was pretty tired, and he falls asleep. And Bob starts driving north up to half a pizza, and we finish packing the truck. I get in. We're heading home. Trish and I are driving. I get to about Albany maybe a little further, and I get a phone call. And in my phone, it says Big Bob. That is the contact in my phone. And I answer the phone, and Bob says, Jeremy, yes, what's going on? I'm I'm thinking he's already home. I'm in Maine. (laughs) Now, I thought he's kidding. And there came a time later on, much later on, when Bobby, his son, was able to tell me the story. Because poor Bobby's asleep in the front seat. And he wakes up to pass a sign that says, Welcome to Maine, <laughs> right? <laughs> and he's like, Dad, what are we doing in Maine? <laughs> and, and my thought to Bob was, Hey, didn't New Hampshire tip you off that you were going the wrong way? <laughs> like, you're, you're two states the wrong direction. <clears throat> So he finally made it home. He actually didn't even go like diagonally down to New York. He drove right back to Boston and then took a right instead of a left and made it home. Yes. 
With great zeal, and I'm sure speed, Bob drove in the wrong direction on this particular day. And you know, as I read this passage in Romans 10, you see Paul's heart breaking. You see Paul um, articulate a frustration, and we've seen the thrust of this argument. You see, Paul's thinking about his kinsmen. He's thinking about his people, uh, the the Jews in in the flesh. When he speaks of Israel, he's speaking of Israel in the flesh. And here, Paul, who is a Jew of Jews, who who was uh, uh, someone bringing the gospel of Jesus Christ, and he would bring it to the Jews first and then to the Gentiles, because what we understand is that, that throughout history, throughout biblical history, God had revealed himself to the Jewish people and in in so many symbolic ways throughout the Old Testament, pointing to Christ, God had revealed himself through Moses and the Exodus and in the in, in everything that we read through the Old Testament as we see it now, it all points to Christ. And here is Paul preaching the gospel and going to the Jews first. You see his frustration as we see in Romans or 10:1, where he says, Brothers, my heart's desire. And prayer to God for them is that they may be saved, as he speaks of his kinsmen. This isn't just theoretical. For Paul, this is, this is real. He's feeling this. If you read Acts chapters 13 through 21, just sometime glance through the book of Acts chapters 13 through 21, what you're going to see is, is Paul's, Paul's heart's desire, his, his, his relation, his 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 um, understanding that the Jews are not receiving the gospel in the right way is very real. You see through these, these chapters in the book of Acts, him go to the synagogues first and not only get um, rejected but expelled, rejected and expelled from, from cities, beaten, um, tortured. Uh, all of these things are happening as the Jews are rejecting the gospel, but yet he sees Gentiles coming to faith, Gentiles receiving the gospel, Gentiles being saved. And so we see Paul throughout the book of Romans in chapter 9 and into chapter 10 expressing this very real emotion that he's having, that his kinsmen are, are not being saved, not responding to the gospel. And so he asked that question back in 914, has the word of God failed? And he's still continuing in the thrust of this argument. And he says, no, the word of God has not failed. And he spends chapter 9 pointing to the sovereignty of God, that it has always been this way, that God has chosen and God has moved in the hearts of those who he would move. And, and, and then he spends some time um, asking questions that people would naturally ask. Well, then is God unjust? Well, then how, how can anyone resist the will of God? How, is, is God wrong in doing this? And, and he answers that by no means. He's not unjust. Who are you, Clay, to answer back to God in that way? Sinful Clay, who are you to ask God this? Cannot the molder of the clay make the clay into whatever he desires? So now, after moving through an explanation of the sovereignty of God in election, he now moves into another point in relationship to why are the Jews not being saved? What's happening here? And in 10.1, he says, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer for God for them is that they would be saved. Look at verse 2. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. See, as Mike talked about last week, they were pursuing righteousness, as we see, as we read in, in verses 30, 
in, in following before we, in 31 and 32, that they were pursuing righteousness, but they were pursuing it in the wrong way. They were heading the wrong direction. And what we see here is something that's shocking to me. As Paul says in verse 2, for I bear witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. So what is this revelation here in verse 2? That, that someone could be zealous for God and not be saved. That's shocking, is it not? That here these, these folks are zealous for God, but they're pursuing in their zeal, they're pursuing God in the wrong way. They're going in the wrong direction. They're zealously heading the wrong direction. Paul has a genuine desire for his kinsmen to be saved, but they're, they're pursuing God the wrong way. And it says why. Why are they pursuing God in the wrong way? Because it's not according to knowledge. What don't they know? So what is it that they don't know? How are they pursuing God in the wrong way? And we see the answer to that question in verse 3. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. So Paul's laying out this argument and he's saying, listen, we see folks that are coming to Christ. We see folks that are being saved. We see genuine faith and righteousness. And then we see my kinsmen, many of my kinsmen who are zealous for God, who are pursuing God, but they're pursuing him in the wrong way. And they're not being saved. Why? Because they're not doing it with knowledge. Because there is ignorance. They're ignorant as to how to pursue God. Well, what are they ignorant about? Well, this goes back to the foundational thing that is at the heart of all of our problems. So we've got to get some context here, right? What is our greatest need? Right relationship with God, is it not? See, as we look at the gospel, as we look from Genesis and creation and the fall and all the way through biblical history, what do we see? We see that our greatest need in life is to have a right relationship with God, that, that we have fallen. And Paul spends Romans 1 through Romans 3 establishing the fact that we have all fallen short, that we have all failed, that in our sinfulness, no one does good, no, not one, that our good works are like filthy rags, that as we measure ourselves in comparison to God and who he is and his righteousness, we all fall desperately short. There is a lot of bad news that we see throughout biblical history in particular particularly in the beginning of the book of Romans as, he's lay, as he lays out our sinfulness. Part of, part of receiving the gospel is recognizing what? The bad news. Because what, what is the heart of our problem and the heart of the problem of the Jews in this, in this passage? What do we want to do? We want to save ourselves. We want to do something. We want to achieve it. We want to accomplish a righteousness where we can then stand in a place where we say, look what we did in, in our efforts to save ourselves. And that is ultimately the wrong way that leads you to destruction. That's what the Word of God says. Greatest sin is this thought that we could save ourselves. That we could accomplish it. So Paul takes great effort to explain how we fall short and how we can't, we cannot meet our greatest need. We cannot make ourselves be in a place of standing 
where we are right before God. We can't do it. And there comes a time, folks, when each of us, as God turns on the lights in our brain and illuminates to us who he is sovereignly, there's a time where we each have to realize and come to an end of ourselves and say, God, I can't do this. I can't pull it off. I can't accomplish this in my own effort. Paul says the biggest problem and the reason why the Jews aren't being saved is because they are pursuing righteousness through the law, that they are trying to be law keepers. They are trying to be good. They are trying to cross every T, dot every I, be the perfect Jew in the effort that if I fulfill the law in all of its detail, that somehow I can accomplish my own salvation. And that was not the purpose of the law at all. For what we see in the scriptures is that the law was a mirror. The law was that thing that set a standard. It's the plumb line that a carpenter uses when he drops the plumb line. So you can't see the walls crooked with the naked eye. But when you drop the plumb line, you see what's straight and you go, oh my goodness, the wall is crooked. What was the law intended to do? It was intended to drive us to the feet of the cross and say, oh my goodness, I'm broken and I'm crooked and I can't do this. I would have never known that I was crooked until God dropped the plumb line of the law to show me the standard. And now that I see the standard, I see that I, I fall woefully short. I'm desperately in need. See, what Paul is saying is the thrust of the scriptures throughout was always pointing to Christ. That the Jews should be recognizing this. That the law points out to them that they can't do it, yet they are still trying to accomplish it on their own. And, and fulfill their own salvation and their own works and righteousness. And Paul's saying, that can't happen. And they're missing it. They're missing it for lack of knowledge. They're ignorant to the fact that there's only one way to be righteous. So he's broken. He's heartbroken. He's burdened. So what are they doing? They're seeking to establish, we see in verse 3, their own righteousness. In ignorance, they're seeking to establish their own righteousness, and they're not submitting to God's. That's a, tough, that's a tough concept for us, especially achievers, right? Many of us, you know, we've grown up in, in the U.S. of A., but we want to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. We want to achieve. We want to do. We want to accomplish. How else am I supposed to live for God other than in submission to God, right? Isn't it supposed to be me trying really hard to keep the Ten Commandments? Isn't it supposed to be me just saying, I don't murder, I'm not angry, I don't commit adultery, I don't do this, I don't do that? And in our achieving, what do we do? We look at the person next to us and we say, well, I'm not that bad, right? Maybe I've accomplished something. Maybe I've gotten to a place where I have been good enough. How often do we hear that? I was sharing this with a friend in a road trip. We were going to a kid's event. Our kids were going to some field trip and it was another dad in the car we began to talk about this, and I just asked him, I said, so what do you think about God? What do you, what, you know, what, what's your feelings on this? Do you have faith uh, in a God? What, where do you, and, and this was his answer to me, and it was, I've heard it so many times. You know, I, I don't know. I don't know if there's a God. I believe there's probably a God, and I got to believe. I've got to believe that I've just treated people well enough, and I've just been good enough so that if, if there is a God, I'm going to be okay. That is the lie of our day. If I just, just, I'm better than that guy. 
And honestly, as I get introspective about this, I see the sin in my own heart, and I know that's not true. I mean, I live in a world, as a, I, many of you know vocationally, I'm special victims chief at the DA's office, and I process, I've spent the last 12 years prosecuting child abuse and homicides and child physical and sexual abuse and adult sexual abuse. And I come face to face day after day after day after day with incredible darkness and people doing the worst things to the most innocent. And you see the desperate depravity in our world. But folks, make no mistake, as I get introspective and began to look and examine my own heart, I'm desperately wicked as well. And I'm in need of the grace of God today as much as the day I first realized I needed it. I need his grace in my life. And by the grace of God, my life has changed. By the grace of God, I've pursued righteousness. Now listen, folks, that works is not absent from this. Works is not is not gone. What we're seeing in the scriptures is works is not what saves you. But if you are saved, and if your faith is active, if you have received the gift of faith, we see in the book of James, then the evidence of that is going to be works in your life. We, in relationship to this free gift of faith that we add nothing to, will then begin to turn and see us Live out the gospel in our lives and you will see the evidence of work in the faith of those who believe. Amen? And so one of the things we can say to ourselves is if we see someone who's, there is zero evidence of faith and maybe faith didn't happen. But works do not save you. Works do not save you. And as we examine our hearts, what do we see? We see desperate need. When I examine my heart, I see desperate need. Paul puts it this way in Philippians chapter 3. If you have your Bibles, turn there. It'll be on the screen. I love this in Philippians chapter 3. Paul articulates this exact point, starting in verse 4. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Listen to verse 7. But whatever gain I had, I count as loss. For the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. What a remarkable statement. Here's what Paul says. You think you got good works? I'm Michael Jordan. And you're like an average healthy athlete, right, in comparison. I'm MJ on the good works, 
and you're not. There is nobody more blameless than Paul. He was a Jew of Jew. He's, he, he was a zealous Pharisee. He was a persecutor of the church. As we see in the book of Acts, he was there directing at the stoning of Stephen. Paul was a Jew of Jew, a Pharisee of Pharisees, had memorized scriptures. I mean, how many of us grow up in church like this? Think about anybody who grew up in Baptist churches or some evangelical churches. What was the deal? Like some of these Baptist churches, you, you grow up and you like, you, if you're the quickest at sword drilling, right, you get the, you get the pin. Um, you, if you kick butt in Sunday school, you, like, you, you could come out looking like, um, looking like a general with flags and pins. And, and you know, I, I memorized Esther. I, I knew this. I, I, I've been in Bible studies where you're just sitting with the guy that's like, I know the 10 coolest things to say about this passage. Just open it up and I know them, right? And, and folks are working and attaining and memorizing. All of this is, is good stuff. I'm not, I'm not slamming this. But, but Paul is saying, I was, I was a Jew of Jews. I, I was as zealous as it gets. I was as blameless as it gets. All of my accomplishments, in comparison to knowing Christ, rubbish. Absolute garbage. All the things I thought I had done to attain something, as compared to the surpassing glory of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, is absolute nothing. I count it loss. It's complete meaninglessness because his righteousness came through Christ, not what he attained. Amen? Here's what the Jews are, aren't getting here. Here's what they're ignorant to in this passage that we see revealed to us in the scriptures. And I, I pray that God is awakening in your mind and in your hearts as we preach the gospel, and it's this. You can't work hard enough. You can't achieve enough. You can't be nice enough. You can't be giving enough. You can't be Ten Commandments keeping enough to attain your own salvation. The only way to righteousness is as if you receive an alien righteousness that's not your own. As we see in the book of Romans, Jesus was righteous. Jesus was perfect. Jesus lived a righteous life that none of us are capable of accomplishing in our own sin. Even when we do good things, we do it with wrong motives. Our hearts are desperately wicked, desperately sinful, and we are in desperate need of an alien righteousness that's not of our own. And so the, the key to this, the heart of what Paul is saying is stop working to achieve it. You're missing it. You're driving to Maine, okay? You're going the wrong direction. What you need to do is realize you're utterly sinful and throw your life at the foot of the cross and rely on the grace of Jesus Christ to provide righteousness for you, amen? Is this not good news? There is not a religion on the face of the planet where you don't have to earn it. But our God paid the price for us. Our God did what we could not do. And the way we reject it is to persist in trying to accomplish it ourselves. And then we miss it. And what Paul's saying is the gospel is this. Rely on the righteousness of Christ. Rely on the work of Christ. Receive it as a gift. You can't earn a gift. You receive it as a gift. You have to let God serve you in this. 
How hard is that? Martin Luther writes extensively about this great discovery he had as he read the book of Romans, chapter 1, verse 17. And he writes about this. And he describes it as if the gates of heaven opened up to him. He, he was a monk. Martin Luther was a Catholic monk, and he was burdened with the weight of his sin. If you read anything about Luther, he was so burdened by, by his lack of righteousness. And he was so burdened by his own understanding of his own sin and how much he had fallen short. And as he read the scriptures, he, he felt beaten. He felt battered. He felt as if he could never overcome this. He could never accomplish enough. He could never be good enough. And then he read Romans 117, and he writes about this great discovery. A single word, he says, in it the righteousness of God revealed stood in my way. I hated that word, righteousness of God, which I had been taught to understand philosophically regarding the formal act of righteousness, as they called it, with which God is righteous and punishes the unrighteous sinner. Nevertheless, I beat upon Paul at that place, most ardently desiring to know what Paul meant. And he goes on to write this. At last, by the mercy of God, meditating day and night, I gave heed to the context of the words. There I began to understand that the righteousness of God is that which the righteous likes by the gift of God, lives by the gift of God, namely, by faith. He who by faith is righteous shall live. Here I felt I was altogether born again and had entered paradise itself through open gates. What an amazing revelation that he had that launched the Reformation. The righteousness of God, as he read it, it beat upon him. The righteousness of God, as he read it, it burdened him. The righteousness of God, by which God is perfect and he punishes those who aren't because he's just. And if he wasn't just, he wouldn't be good. Of course God is just. He must punish sin. And, and, it, and it burdened Luther until he heeded the context of those words and he realized it's by faith that he's made righteous. And it was as if he had been born again. It was as if he had entered paradise itself through open gates. What a revelation. What an amazing revelation. I pray that we have that today. If you haven't had it before, that you recognize your need for God. That I recognize my need for God. And that I recognize his incredible provision in his love and in his grace to meet that need. That God has met us in Christ where we couldn't do anything to save ourselves. He lived the righteous life that he freely gives to us. Amen? There's a picture of this in the Gospels. And I'm going to close with this in a minute. We see Peter. In the upper room, and I know I've talked about this before in the past, but what, what, a, what a beautiful picture. 
And Peter comes to Jesus, and Jesus was in the upper room, and we know from all the Gospels that, that he's about to go to the cross, and they're, they're at the, like, what we know to be the Last Supper. And Jesus has been engaging the disciples. They're arguing about who's the greatest, right? Who's the greatest? Who's the greatest? And Jesus is about to show them who the greatest is. And Jesus walks over to that servant who's sitting at the door who would wash their feet as they walked with sandals down the dirty roads where animals had been. Anytime they would come into a home and recline at a dinner table. They didn't sit at a table like us. They would recline so your feet would be near the other dude, right? So they walk into a house and, and they would put their feet in the basin. And this servant, who I can only assume kind of got the shaft job in the house, right, was washing their feet. So they'd put their feet into the bowl of water, and, and the servant would wash their feet. And as they're arguing about this, and Jesus, knowing he's going to the cross, he gets up and he walks over, and he slides the servant over, and he grabs the towel. And Peter's mind is blown, right? Peter looks at Jesus, and he says, no. He reacts. No, you can't do that, Jesus. You are the Messiah. Why are you grabbing this towel? And Jesus looks at Peter, and he says, if you don't let me wash your feet, you have no part in me. Peter cries out, and wash all of me. See, Jesus was preparing Peter. He was preparing him for a greater service to come. Because Jesus was about to go to the cross. And he was about to become the most despicable sight in the history of the world. As he took upon himself all sin. For those who would believe. Saved up from Adam to the end of the world. God's just wrath and punishment for sin. The cup of that wrath poured out completely upon him. For us. We see Jesus in Matthew 27 cry out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus, who stood before Pilate, not a word of protest. Falsely accused, not a word of protest. Walked to the cross, not one word in dispute, not one word in protest. Why? Because he couldn't save himself and save us at the same time. Jesus, who, who went to the cross, we hear these cries from the cross. This is the first word of what seeming would, would be protest as he cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus was forsaken so I don't have to be. So I won't be. Amen? He was forsaken, so you won't be forsaken. And he takes upon himself the sin of the world. So here's where we are in Romans chapter 10. We have to realize this, that, that the God of the universe has gotten up off of his throne. And, and folks, we do this with me. Think of yourself. It's easy for us to believe God loves us as a group, as if God's partial to groups, right? I want you to think about yourself. Because the God of the universe has gotten off of his throne. The creator of all, the glorious one, has gotten off of his throne. And he's come to you in the midst of your sin, in your depravity, in your mistakes. And he gets down on a knee with a towel at your feet. And your only reaction should be like that of Peter's. Like, no, how could you do this? And he says, if you don't let me wash your feet, you have no part in me. 
we have to allow him to serve us in this way? That the God of the universe has provided for me something I could never provide for myself. That I don't add to it, I can't earn it, I can't pursue it in my own righteousness, but he has come in Christ and provided a righteousness that's not my own. And he has served me and washed me clean. And I wasn't even looking for it. I was in the midst of my rejection of him. And he still died for me and he still served me. Why? For his glory, that he would be glorified. So what do we do? We receive it. Amen? We receive it. We say like Peter, oh God, then wash all of me. By faith, by a faith that even you've given me, I receive your righteousness. Not a righteousness of my own. I can't pursue it. I can't do good enough to earn it but I receive it by faith. Not intellectual assent. Let's be careful with our language because faith means something. Not intellectual assent like I'm going to hang it up on a picture and just point to it as I walk by and acknowledge, yeah, that's true. But James describes that our faith is life-relying, life-altering faith. He is... Not just my Savior, He is the Lord of my life. He's in charge. I believe, and therefore, I'm justified, declared not guilty. Not because I did anything to deserve it, but because He did. And that faith, as I rely upon Him, alters every way that I think and live. Does that make sense? Just receive it. What's the application? Receive the gospel of Jesus Christ. Believe with your life. What am I pursuing? Am I pursuing as my greatest need financial security? Am I pursuing as my greatest need a vacation this year? Am I pursuing as my greatest need the ability someday to stop working and maybe go somewhere warm and chase a white ball for the rest of my life? What, what am I pursuing? What is my greatest need? My greatest need is to be right with God. How, do, how does that happen? I rely on Christ who has provided everything that I need, and by faith I believe. I believe with my life. I love and believe in Christ with my life. And what does that do? That should, if it's real, begin to change the way I live. It'll begin to change the things I go after. It'll begin to change the way I treat my wife and raise my kids, the way I work every day, because nobody experiences the God of the universe getting off his throne and serving and loving and washing you clean and walks away from that experience and says, yeah, thank you, now I'm going to go do what I want. That doesn't happen. When we experience the grace and mercy of God and we believe, our lives begin to change. That's where works come in. Amen? 
Our works don't earn anything. You know what our works are? A life of worship because of a God who saved us. We can't get that backwards. There are so many folks today trying so hard to be good enough. And I love what Jesus says. My burden is light. My yoke is not heavy. Those who are weary and heavy laden, come to me and I'll give you rest. We get to rest in the righteousness of another. It's been given to us freely by his grace. He says, believe. Have faith. And you'll be justified. And the question of your right standing before God is answered. Amen? That's good news this morning. It's good news this morning. And how do we, how do we hear it? 2 Corinthians 4, 6. That God who said, let there be light and created light in the midst of darkness is the same God who speaks light that's shown right into your hearts as we hear the gospel and respond and believe. And if you're feeling the lights getting turned on in your heart, don't walk away. If the, if the God who created the world and spoke and it happened is speaking to you, and you're hearing and you're understanding, that is the work of God in your life. Respond with faith this morning and believe. Amen? Let's pray. God, we thank you so much. That sounds so trite. To even say it, thank you. We come this morning a grateful people. And the more, God, that you reveal your word to us, the more grateful we become. The more we dive into the scriptures and learn what it is you've done for us and who you are and how you saved us, the more we want to worship you. The more our desire is to worship you, not just with singing, but with our lives. Not just with passionate emotion as we declare your truths in song and worship together here. Yes, we do that but passionately loving you as we leave this place and serve each other, serve those around us. God, my prayer is that you would change our lives by your gospel, your good news. Lord, those who have never believed before, pray right now as we come to you in this place, there is no better time to reflect in our hearts and say, I believe. I respond to your free gift, your grace, which is unmerited favor, and I receive it. I receive what you've done. Change me. I repent. Turn me, and I'll be turned. We rely on you, and today we give up our self-reliance to accomplish it. We declare we've come to the end of ourselves and we rely completely on you. In Jesus' name, everybody said, amen.